Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to the filmmakers behind the new eight-part Netflix series, Flint Town. The Michigan city, once known for its auto industry and unionized workforce, today is struggling with vacant factories, crime, and a catastrophic water crisis. At the start of Flint Town, we hear this montage of voices. People migrated to Flint for jobs. Flint put the world on wheels. This is where GM came from. There was a lot more income in the city then. Home of the middle class. The American dream. And then things kind of changed. And they changed quick. Poverty and lack of opportunity, it breeds crime. This is a story about an American city in critical condition. For Flint Town, the filmmaker spent the year of 2016 embedded with the city's police department. Over the course of eight episodes, we follow several characters, from rookie cadets to veteran officers, and all the way up to the new chief, Tim Johnson. The city of Flint, they're going to see a totally different police department from what they've been used to dealing with. And we're going to go in there with zero tolerance. I don't care what hole they crawled into, what house they crawled up under, we're going to crawl up under there and bring them out. We're going to enforce every law on the book. That means I don't care if your pants is halfway off your behind, uh, that's indecent exposure. We're going to arrest for it, bottom line. I need 10 of the best officers, and I'm going to put them in this unit. It's called the Cat Squad, and they're going to be assigned to target the high crime areas. It's like a military operation. This is my city. This is my city. And we're going to take our city back. We're going to take it back. We're going to take it back. We're going to take it back. As the year progresses, the officers cope with rising tensions over policing. The series builds up to the 2016 election when a local vote over a millage property tax threatens to reduce police funding even further. If the millage does not pass, we are losing bodies. They're projecting that we're going to lose at least 20 positions. Before this millage, the people were told they were going to get a lot of new cops and more safety on the streets. It's time for people to stand up and say, you know, we gave it to you last time and we're still in the same boat. Crime rate's high, police ain't showing up. If you're not doing what you're supposed to with the funding you already have, why should anyone give you more? If the millage does not pass, we will not be able to support the staff that we have today. So I've given you the series timeline. What's harder for me to convey are some of the qualities that make it so special. Visually, it's beautifully photographed, making the most of Flint's snowy landscapes. Emotionally, it's filled with compassion for its characters in all their complexity. There are three people on the directing team of Flint Town. Two of them, Zachary Canapari and Dre Cooper, made a previous film in Flint called T-Rex about the young boxer Clarissa Shields. She was nicknamed T-Rex for her short arms and ferocious attack. When Zachary and Dre first started following Clarissa, she was largely unknown 
training for the 2012 Olympics. That was the first year women boxers were allowed to compete. T-Rex played on PBS's Independent Lens, and it's an all-round terrific film. dream. I'm in England, London, and it's the finals in the Olympics. This is the first year that women will be allowed to box in the Olympics. Clarissa Shields has entered this tournament virtually an unknown. She has just turned 17, so this is her first international tournament. If Clarissa places in the top eight, she will make the U.S. Olympic team. A champion. A coach always wants a champion. I think I got one. I just never thought it was going to be a girl. Brianna, my little brother Peanut, my mom, those are people who I want to come with me. I know if they got a flint, they're going to change their life. I hope that my sister be able to take us all about this hellhole that we live in. I would never imagine that she would come this far. If anything, it's tears of joy. This is our time. We ain't gotta wait no four years. We can win this damn thing right now. What does it feel like to be a part of Olympic history? Larissa Shields has been on a mission. What an astonishing hook that was. Thunderous left hook. I'm not gonna float under pressure. Come too far to do that. This ball was in your soul, was in your spirit. If you stay down, then you're down. But if you get back up, you're the truth. It's up to you to show who Ressa Shields really is. The documentary T-Rex was beloved in Flint for celebrating a hometown hero. Although Zachary and Dre started the film as outsiders to the city, they invested so much time there, they wanted to tell more stories. In making Flinttown, they were joined by a third director, Jessica Dimmick, who is a still photographer with the Seven Agency. She also directed the documentary The Pearl about transgendered women in the Pacific Northwest. I sat down with all three directors in front of a live audience after a preview screening of Flinttown at New York's IFC Center. We had just watched episodes one and two. I started by asking Zachary to explain how he and Dre first came to Flint. Yeah, uh, Dre and I were kind of, I mean, I think some of this is just about being a storyteller. We were just looking for a certain type of story. We were looking at a lot of teenage athlete stories at the time. Um, we were just interested in the subject matter, and and Clarissa kind of came on our radar. Um, our producer on that project, Sujay, who's somewhere in the crowd, um, had done a story on Clarissa that we had caught wind of, and it just seemed like a really, you know, rich environment. We spoke to Clarissa on the phone. She was very charismatic, and we went to Flint, and over the course of a weekend, we kind of had this really incredible experience there. Like, it wasn't the thing that everybody thinks it is. It's much more, it was much more layered. We went to, like, her 17th birthday party where she had a water balloon fight and went to a high school dance, and it was like, it just felt a lot more sort of like magnetic than I think it was portrayed as, and, or at least what we thought it would be. And so from there, making that film, we just got a unique window into this place. And I, I think after making the film, you know, I don't think any of us felt like the work in Flint was done. 
And so we just kind of stuck around and kept making stuff. You know, the water crisis when that hit was definitely, um, you know, that was not expected. I mean, we had caught wind of the water crisis well before it kind of became national news, but at the same time, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the thing that it became still. I mean, it was just like, don't drink the water. I mean, I was showering in the water, drinking coffee, drinking cocktails. I mean, all these things that like, at, over time you realize that all of it was poison. And that took some time to like really kind of wrap our brains around. And, and then it was just like, this story was the center point. Flint became the center point for infrastructure poverty issues in America. And, and at that point it was just, there was, there was a lot to do. It just felt like a very important story to tell. So Dre, how did you choose to focus on Flint's police department? Well, I think, you know, having spent off and on the better part of almost three years in Flint working with Clarissa and her coach Jason and family and friends, I mean, you know, uh, she is an inspiration to the town and to the city. Um, that said, you know, she could never shake Flint. You know, Flint was always, you know, part of her. Um, and, you know, everybody she knew to, to, you know, one extent or another was involved with the police or, um, you know, had run-ins and, you know, there was just so many challenges living in a city like Flint. Um, so I think the police side of it was always, you know, in the background and kind of the backdrop to her story. Um, and once that, that film wrapped up and it came out, um, this was around 2015 and it was just, you know, one thing after the next. And I, I live in Oakland and the Oscar Grant story, you know, hit home really hard. And then I think after that, it was just, you know, one, officer involved shooting after the next and, and the Ferguson situation took place. And so it was very much like on our conscience and it was like, what's going on here? And I think, you know, we were very interested in trying to understand, you know, what happens behind these doors of a police department? You know, what really is going on inside some of these places? Who becomes a police officer? Um, why? Um, for what reasons? You know, what are their intentions? Um, and so we looked around and it turned out, I mean, we had these great relationships in Flint and we had screened T-Rex. Um, the mayor at the time and, uh, and Chief Tolbert had come out and, um, you know, they said, hey guys, if we could help you out with anything, let us know. And we kind of jumped on the opportunity and Zach started, you know, going down and knocking on the door. And that was kind of fall of 2015. Um, and then, you know, right along started and, Next thing you know, we found ourselves, you know, working with a, you know, half a dozen different officers. I asked Jessica how she got drawn into the project. When I knew that there was the type of access and the type of opportunity to get close to these police officers, you know, this wasn't like natural subject matter for me necessarily, but I'm always really interested in communities that we think we know a lot about because we have very established preconceived notions about them and then the opportunity to kind of look at layers beyond that and, and peeling back some of that facade. And that seemed like that was what was going on here. You know, it was, it was a group of police officers that were really open and a department that would really allow us, you know, if we were there, we could just have a swipe car that would get us into the building, into all of the rooms in the building, and we could just show up and go on night patrol. It wasn't like there were these constant barriers, and it seems like an opportunity to do something with a community that's been explored, but through a certain angle, and, and to do something really intimate and personal in a way that wasn't totally expected. So that was exciting to me. Two memorable characters in Flint Town are officers Bridget Belasco and Robert Frost. Bridget could be an actress with her photogenic looks. She's newer to the force with three years of experience. 
But yeah, sometimes it's intimidating. I think so. A lot of people won't admit it, but I will. I'll admit it when it's intimidating and scary. Robert is a more hardened veteran with 12 years on the job. They don't want tough anymore. Look at what the public's asking for. They don't want the the hardcore police officer's going to show up and handle everything. They want the soft and fluffy guy wearing a purple uniform that's going to come in and give him a hug and tell him everything's going to be okay. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you need that hard ass that's going to stand there. And if he has to throw it down, he'll throw it down because that's what's going to get everybody out of his safe. One of several storylines is a growing relationship between Bridget and Robert. We were partners for a while. I mean, we were coworkers. <laughs> I thought he was kind of intimidating. I mean, you know, he is kind of rough. He spouts off at the mouth and comes across as an asshole. But I liked him from the beginning. I did. I get a picture she sent me, and it was some event somewhere. And uh... he said something like, "Oh, that looks like a lot of fun." And I think I told him I was like, "Oh, I wish you, were, I wish you had been there with me." And I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. From that day all the way till right this very moment, I have no idea how I am pulling this off. No idea. Her caliber of person is far beyond me, but for whatever reason, it's working, so <laughs> I'll keep trying. I asked Jessica if their film team divvied up characters to follow. You know, we all covered all of it, all of the time, but... Uh, you know, you get close to someone and, and you establish a certain rapport and, and you know you can do a certain thing with a certain character. And, you know, so we, we would have our, like, go-to people. Who is up at dawn with Bridget and Robert as they're, uh, you know, g- getting up in the morning? Definitely. Who do you think? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely Jess. Yeah, definitely Jess. Um, yeah. No, I would, like, I would go home with Frost and Jess would be... Like, I'd text Jess, we're on our way, and Jess would be with Bridget at Bridget, like, basically in Bridget's bedroom at 5 in the morning. And we, like, you know, this was just part of our strategy to kind of get deeper into, you know, see what happens after these guys take their uniforms off and really understand what it's like to be them on an intimate level. As the series goes on, th- there's even more hairy situations than than what we see in these first two episodes. You know, lots of times police officers are on patrol by themselves and, you know, one of your crew people are in the car. Um, I mean, can you talk about some of the risks involved in covering this story and and how you dealt with them? Um, Dre broke a rib. I broke a rib. (laughs) Uh, In a car chase, come on. I mean, you know, we started this thing well before Netflix came on board. you know, and because and, we had the access and we were just following this story. And, you know, Frost and some of the other guys were, you know, like, hey, you guys should probably, you know, wear, wear some of these. You know, here, here's a bulletproof vest. And they were like 10 years old and super thin. They barely fit. Um, and so, you know, we roll around like that and we kind of thought, oh, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll be fine. Um, but the reality is, is these guys, I mean, you know, there's not a moment where, you know, they're not taking these calls super seriously as they approach cars and houses and you name it. And I think, honestly, given our background experience, I think we com- we were super naive. You know, I think we completely underestimated a handful of situations. Fortunately, um, you know, everything ended up working out okay for us and, and most of their encounters. Um, but once Netflix came on and we actually had some budget, we got real bulletproof vests. 
Um, and, and thankfully, our entire crew was, you know, protected to an extent. You know. It's the Netflix perk. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so, you know, Zachary, you mentioned that this was taking place against uh, a backdrop of, of an ongoing conversation about policing uh, in this country. And as the year 2016 progresses, there's some very harrowing incidents like the targeted assassination of six police officers in, in Dallas that you know, becomes a kind of moment in, in this series. As you were going along, what did you think you were adding to this conversation? Or you know, how were you grappling with what your film was going to say about this conversation? Well, I hope it challenges. I mean, I hope it makes the conversation a lot more complicated. I mean, we are not, you know, we are not pro-police. We didn't go into this thing pro-police. We're not, uh, you know, I think if anything, I'd probably say I was anti-police. Um, and I wanted to sort of dive into the other side. I think we all do and just kind of like understand what the other side is seeing. As we go on through the show, these guys go through all these different national and personal events, you know, Philando Castile shooting happens in episode three. They watch that. They all have to experience that. You know, episode four is Dallas shooting. I mean, so there's a lot of, you know, national conversations that take place in the show. Um, and I think what we just found constantly was that that it was more complicated than, you know, just uh, just kind of like what the mass media sort of covered it as. And, and that's not a knock on the mass media because I work with them and I understand them. But like, you know, I think in a sense there's a very one-dimensional thing that that is going to happen in those situations, and it's the same thing that happens with the water crisis. You know, it's like it's very one-dimensional. It's about polit it's about policy decisions and public health. And while it's no, it's not really about fear and and psychological challenges and all this kind of other stuff that plays into these. And that's where we wanted to be is in the psychological space. Um, what it's like to be, you know a cop watching the Philando Castile video. What's, what it's like to be a cop the day of the Dallas shootings. I mean, like that's the space we wanted to be in. So, you know, I think we're there and I hope that people have real conversations about what, what these relationships are like between the community and the police. I mean, I don't think we solved anything, no. but if anything, we challenged it. I mean, the idea was, you know, the the department's pretty small, right? 98 officers. Um, the city's relatively small, 100,000 people. But it is this microcosm. And, you know, the challenge in a city like Flint, obviously, is that it's an extreme version of a place where, you know, shit's gone wrong, right? I mean, there's been, you know, decades and decades of infrastructure breakdown. So to try to understand, you know, what we, I think... You know, we'll often talk about it's just about this relationship between the police and community and how can we understand this and how can we fix this thing. Uh, it just seems like you can't have that conversation in a vacuum, right? You have to understand all the different factions that play into it. And poverty is huge, right? And so when you live in a place like Flint where joblessness is through the roof, um, you know, you're going to have a situation where it's so dire and it's so intense that... Um, you know, it puts all this pressure on this relationship. And so I think to try to understand that, you know, from the point of view of the people who are tasked with, you know, keeping the city safe, so to speak, I think, you know, can provide some, you know, insight. And so, you know, hopefully by episode eight, you know, people can kind of understand like, holy shit, you know, when there's all these things happening in this place, you know, who are the people and how do they think and feel about the community that they serve? And the force is, you know, it's, you know, give or take half African-American, half white, half the police force are from Flint. 
Um, and that changes the dynamic, that changes the relationship. And so, you know, in the series, we follow a handful of officers who have these different backgrounds and you get these different points of view. And I think, um, you know, what I think we saw lacking over the last couple of years is like an in-depth study, if you will, of, you know, a police force and who are these guys that make up this, this you know, this kind of department. As the series reaches the presidential election, we watch political preferences split across race. As one black officer puts it, This presidential election really just, it revealed a lot of uh, uh, buried um, racism, right, and bias in people that, uh, you know, when it came out, you say to yourself, I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. I asked the filmmakers if they observed people being more outspoken about race as the election got closer. Yeah, I think that that kind of builds up in the course of the season because it was something that build, built up, you know, during the chronology of us being there and that it's seemingly a very harmonious department and I think we believe that it is, but as issues about race and, and how minorities should be treated and how you should regard poor people were coming up more in the presidential election and as Trump was divisive about some of that, we saw that division kind of coming up in the department. And it was a it was a hard moment to to witness and it was a hard moment to observe because you had these officers that in a lot of ways get along very well and, and do their job side by side very well. And and then there was this thing that they just didn't see eye to eye on. And and you start to kind of wonder how that reflects the community that they're serving and how they look at the community that they're serving. Um, and so that was definitely something that like, you know, was under the surface and it, it came up more because that's what this national election did. That's what the, you know, presidential election did in so many ways nationwide. And so it bubbled up there too. The water crisis in Flint is, is, is really in the background uh, of this. You're not taking it uh, head on. We've seen in a couple of scenes like the democratic uh, presidential debates. But um, but mostly it's in the background. Can you talk about you know that as a choice? I, I think the reality is is we were we're telling the story of the Flint Police Department, and they happen to be in a city that is dealing with and reeling from you know a handful of of, of problems. Um, one of which is you know toxic water, and so in some ways the 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 water is the backdrop and it's in the background throughout the entire series. I think what's interesting is that you come to see how the officers, and you'll see this in later episodes, um, how the officers and and you know folks in the community, you know they're dealing with some of the same problems. They're facing the same issues, and so the the playing field is leveled in some ways. So you know a handful of the officers still live in Flint. A handful of the officers have family in Flint. So you know they there's there's this opportunity for empathy, I think, between these guys, given how dire the situation is, you know? And if anybody's from Flint or been there or knows folks from there, the reality is, is like, folks from Flint are tough and and they share this bond with each other and they kind of like, you know, I mean, there's something to it, you know? And that's what I think Clarissa, you know, in our previous film exhibited, and that's what made her so magnetic, right? Um, and so I think with that water crisis in the background, you know, it plays out in these relationships that these guys have with each other. At the same time, these guys can't even drink water at the department, at the station, right? There's signs up there, you can't use the water faucet. And it's just like, you know, when you live in an environment like that, it takes a psychological toll on you, you know? And so to think about, 
you know, long-term trauma and effects and that kind of thing. I mean, this shit is real. And so to see, um, you know, that just kind of play out, um, you know, we were fairly conscious in like trying to keep it there in the frame. You know, these guys have to go pick up water, you know, once a week and pick up all these bottles and put them in their trunk and take them to their house. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's crazy. Um, so, you know, at the same time, we were telling a police story. So we didn't focus on the politics per se, you know. And I, I will say, you know, one of the things that we tried to do with that and one of the ways that we saw that it was relevant was that, you know, we weren't trying to do a story about the water, but it did play into how the community feels in terms of systems that they can trust. And so, you know, the police are a system and, and when you watch the community feel distrustful of the police, it's in part because other systems that are there and are supposed to work don't. So when you have water that's poison, when your schools are shutting down, when the factories that were there abandon you, those are all systems that, you know, you should be able to rely on you and you can't. And so, of course, that very much played into the psychology between community and police relationships. And that was the thing that we felt like was important to kind of keep there so that people could understand that. I want to ask you about the the look of uh, the film because, uh, you know, when I think about police shows on TV, maybe you think of cops and, uh, you know, a real kind of like run and gun shooting. But, you know, this has a very uh, deliberate uh, approach to cinematography, and I wonder if you could talk about it. All of us, Jess and myself, both have photo backgrounds. Dre's background is not just in documentary, it's in cinema. And it's like, you know, I think we all just kind of come from this place where we want things to be visually engaging. And so, you know, we've been making stuff for a handful of years. We had a specific style. We have a specific sort of set of tools that we can bring to this. And we kind of threw whatever we had at this project, you know, I mean, whether that's mounted cameras or drones or, you know, certain certain types of styles of shooting, we wanted to like create a palette of visual material to, for an audience to like get engaged with. We want it to feel like a film. You know, we don't want it just to feel like, uh, you know, a guy with a shoulder camera in a car. And so, you know, it, it, no offense to the camera guy in the shoulder thing that I just described. Cops is a good show, I still like Cops. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of our our approach. And, um, and talk about the interviews that you do uh, throughout. The, yeah. uh, how was that staged? Where were, where did they take place? That was at the Holiday Inn Express on Robert T. Longway in the conference room. Um, we had to like constantly wrangle everybody to come to us. We offered them free Holiday Inn Express breakfast mostly. Um, so shout out to the Holiday Inn Express. Thank you. I wish they had sponsored us. I lived there for like a year and a half making this thing. So it was... I have a personal, uh, emotional connection to them. So the, sorry, going on about this. Um, the biggest thing I can say about our show is that like we have unique conversations with these officers and with these community members. As the show goes on, you'll see like, there's some really honest, raw kind of, I don't know, insight into what it's like to be a, from this community, what it's like to be a police officer. And so our, interview strategy was to try to create something unique, so try to create something that was personal, try to create a, a, a circumstance where the the subject was looking directly at the viewer and kind of engaging with them, um, challenging them. So, you know, that was kind of the approach with the interview booth. We took a few questions from the audience. One woman asked how the filmmakers chose their key characters. 
Zachary answered. We cast, in a sense. You know, we go out with different guys, we hang out with them, we spend a lot of time getting to know these people. And so, you know, this, and that doesn't even, you know, that's outside of using cameras too. There's a, definitely a lot of lunches and drinks and dinners and hanging out and sitting in meetings and having coffees and eating. But the, there's a, there's a process of getting to know people. And so, you know, we just learned who was going to fit within the story that felt the most accurate and honest to the story we were trying to tell. Frost was the first character we ever met. You know, he's the first guy I ever met. And day one, he said that uh, half of that stuff, which was like, you know, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel and, uh, you know, just trying to keep up, feel like a UPS driver. Um, you know, I think in our first couple of weeks, he told me about his shooting. I mean, it was very early on that some of these officers were very honest and, and, and other officers took time to warm up. So it's kind of a mix. And out of you know a situation like that, I mean, Bridget is is a natural because a she's the girlfriend of Frost, but also you know he's this like abrasive, hard, um, somewhat divisive type of character, and it's through her eyes that we also can see some of the more redeeming qualities. You know, to like have him alone maybe would be totally off putting to the audience, but when you have this kind of empathetic and sweet character, and she loves him. Um, we're hoping that that gives the audience a little bit of an entry point, at least to give him a chance. You know, whether or not you end up understanding him is is yet to be seen, but to have just an entry point. Let's put it this way. If you meet Bridget in the Flint Police Department and you don't put her in your movie, you're fired as a documentary <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> oh, man, I wish she was here to that. hear that. Yeah, she would love that. Another audience question came from an attorney named Frederica Bashir. Hi. Um, so I'm from Flint, Michigan. So it's very personal to me. Yeah. Um, all of the things that you talk about, Door Highway, Robert T. Longway, all of that, the service center and where the debate was. I just talked to my father on the phone a few minutes ago. He's there. Uh, so it's very personal to me. Um, let's see, how do I say this? I didn't see, I haven't seen the whole series. Mm -hmm. I was concerned that the audience would be distracted by the love story between Frost and... Um, Bridget. Yeah, Bridget. When there's so much more at stake in the story. I don't, I mean, it was nice, I enjoyed it to some degree, but there are so many statistics about Flint that I felt that I wish had been explored. like. In the beginning, there was an officer who said how immediate it was. And the reality is it, it was true that um, Flint was almost idyllic yeah. up until the late 70s and early 80s. And suddenly, by the early 80s, it was on the front of the New York Times and the Washington Post for violent crime and for you know, you know, the escalating crack cocaine epidemic, the loss of the... Uh, the factories, and then finally the um, the murder rate, which definitely, if you're dealing with the Flint police, I mean, Flint had one of the highest murder rates in the country for years. You know, um, I actually lost my own brother to the streets of Flint, Michigan. So, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy the series, uh, but one thing that there's a connection between the water crisis and the police department is something that I had to go back to Flint a few times to see. 
and that is that you have a city that was already, like the gentleman said, had one of the highest per, me per median income to being, you know, pretty much impoverished now. You have housing um, values that have gone from, say, $100,000 to $20,000. So what you see is this escalating poverty that the officers now have to deal with in terms of the psychology of the city. I mean, like you talked about being in that hotel. How many hotels have closed in Flint, Michigan? I think there are none open in Flint, Michigan right now. Yeah, All of them have closed because of the water crisis. So there are businesses that can no longer function in that city because people will not go to them because of the water crisis. So the poverty that began has now escalated to the point where the reason why you don't have police shootings, you know, I don't know. They don't have time to go out and shoot people. They can barely mm -hmm. keep up with what's going on in that city. Yep. So to the extent that there's this idea that there's a connection to what's happening in Baltimore or uh, you know what's happening in these police-involved shootings, that's not Flint. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so um, I thank you for bringing attention to the to the city and some of the ills, but it really was a great city. Yeah. Um, that contributed to the economy of this country. General Motors began there. Some of the, the biggest foundations were there when I was a child. Um, my life was idyllic. And now when I go back, you know, it looks like the whole city looks like broken teeth. Yeah. You know, uh, you go down whole streets and it's just devastated. So, um, you know, thank you for at least bringing attention to the issue. Um, but it's, for me, it's deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's so hard to like try to, cause I've now been there for a long time and I really like, I've tried to like portray this city in the best way that I can, not always successfully, but you know, I think that the, the part that's so hard to kind of like, to tell in a story, we've always kind of struggled with it in a sense, and we try, is to like make people understand what Flint was. And I think that, well, you know, our, our effort in here, you know, is to like kind of have some of that material just to give people a sense of what it was, what, what the city used to be. But, you know, you can't really recreate it or like tell it to people or make people in New York or wherever really understand it until you're there. And like when you're there, you really get it, you know, you really understand that this thing is, people still call Flint a General Motors town. I mean, they still, they. St I had my Toyota truck up there. I mean, like, people were like, you're gonna get your car scratched, you're gonna get keyed, all this stuff. Like, I mean, this is a serious thing. And, and they're very proud of it. And they somehow, you know, they're upset, obviously, GM left and Flint went to shit, but like, they also, they still have this thing and this pride. And so, you know, it's a big part of, of what it's like there. And I, I hope that all in those eight episodes, that does come out. Um, you know, we followed characters that are still there, that are still trying to make it work. Um, and it wasn't just police, it was community members too that like are still fighting to try to make it work. Um, but you know, it's a hard, it's a hard fight. I want to thank the directors of Flinttown, Zachary Canapari, Drake Cooper, and Jessica Dimmock. You can watch their eight-part series on Netflix. If you're in New York City, 
please come to our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. Every Tuesday, we show a documentary at the IFC Center, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guests. On March 13th, we'll preview another new Netflix series, Wild Wild Country, is about a cult leader who builds a utopian city in Oregon but comes into conflict with local residents. We'll be joined by the sibling filmmakers Chapman and McLean Way, plus their executive producer, Mark Duplass. See the Pure Nonfiction website for details of the event happening March 13th. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.